The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes, you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Memorial Day, Monday, May 31st, 2021. On this episode, we recap the home series against the Baltimore Orioles as the White Sox completed the bum slaying by sweeping the O's in four games. The Chicago White Sox are now 32-20 and 20 as they make their way to Cleveland, which they will have another doubleheader to play on Monday. We'll preview that series, report on the happenings down in the minor leagues, and answer your questions in P.O. Sox. Joining me now is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. The White Sox had a great Memorial Day weekend. Did you... I did, partially because the White Sox had a great Memorial Day weekend and also because uh, it cooled down. So got a respite from heat and humidity. Uh, The chief is all healed up from his surgery, so able to go to the dog park. Enjoyable weekend all around. How about you? That's awesome. 
I'm glad that Chief is feeling a lot better. Yeah, because that cone of shame is not fun for puppies. Uh, Memorial Day weekend was great. Uh, thanks to vaccines and the wonder of science, we were able to have a housewarming party, uh, which was fun and it was great to see everyone. I had friends that had kids that this was the first time we got to see them mm. uh, because of the pandemic. Uh, so that was great. I got a chance to sit in the Goose Island gym. Uh, Our friend uh, Ashley is visiting from Connecticut, so I decided, you know what, I'm going to splurge a little bit. Uh, I'm going to get us seats in the Goose Island, get a chance to experience sitting there. And I have to say, you wouldn't buy season tickets there, but if you are having friends or family and you want to have a special occasion, I recommend it. It's a great view. The seats are pretty comfy. Uh, that USB outlet is pretty clutch, uh, so your phone is always plugged in, uh, and, and you can stay charged, so you don't have to worry about your phone dying. And having wait staff is nice uh, to have somebody come and bring you your beers or whatever food that you want. Uh, but we had a really good time until uh, the sun went away, and then it got really cold. Uh, it was a cold Memorial Day weekend in Chicago. Uh, but it, it was it was a fun time. It was a fun time, and I do recommend it that if you haven't got a chance to sit in the Goose Island, uh, to do it at least once because you you'll have a good time. Yeah, I imagine it's got to be a benefit for uh, people in the content game like us to have charger right there in case we want to do any live reaction or kill some time or do uh, Twitter Spaces or what have you. But um, Part of it, yeah. Part of going to a game for me is putting the phone away for the most part and just keeping score. So, not quite sure. Like, if I want the temptation, I mean, it's handy though if I were going to a White Sox game specifically for that reason to be able to mm-hmm. respond and write and such. But uh, going to a park, like, I kind of like it, it's kind of like when I go on planes, I like the opportunity to not plug in and to not have Wi Fi. Like, if I have to pay for Wi Fi, I don't and I get by with books or you know, stuff I've already downloaded, but uh. But it'd be handy for that, for just being able to talk, to be able to say, like, why are uh, why are people yelling at Angel Hernandez when I can't see the strike zone? All those <laughs> questions you can't get from a side angle. <laughs> yeah, that that was me, right? Because yeah. I was asking, like, why did the Baltimore Orioles catcher throw down a second? And I think you were you chimed in with the strike zone, like, well, because it was a strike. And I, I can't tell from the Goose Island. So I appreciate that. You know what? One thing that's changed my baseball viewing, I have YouTube TV. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you are in the stands and it's a close play that doesn't appear to be going the White Sox way, they don't show replay of it at guaranteed rate field. Mm-hmm. So I just go into YouTube uh, TV, my app, because uh, it's about a 10-second delay. And I just quickly bring up the game there. And I get the TV broadcast feed on my phone. And then that's where I can you know, see the replays while I'm at the stadium. Okay. So that that's where it, it helped me to be plugged in via USB. Uh, but yeah, I was charging my phone for no reason because it was kind of nice just to you know sit back relax you know have a couple beers and and watch the the white Sox beat up on the baltimore orioles and stick around as far as being a straight double header just waiting 30 minutes for game two to start yeah how is that you know i like it uh if this if the shade didn't you know cause a huge drop in temperature we probably would have stayed for game two uh it got just too cold and mm. it was like all right we got to go back and we got to let frankie out uh, 
I like it. I know I've been saying this for a while. Uh, I know there are fans that absolutely hate it. I enjoy the seven inning double headers, and if you're going to do the seven inning double headers, I say do a back to back like yeah. that. I don't like seven inning split. I hate that. Yeah, that that's dumb. Yeah. Waiting, yeah, like I think we're going to see this in Cleveland, which we'll preview the White Sox Indian series later in the podcast. But I think on Monday you're getting a 2.10 p.m. start, uh, Central Time start, and I think like a 5 o'clock start. So maybe it's uh, it's not that big of a difference as far as time. But yeah, if you're doing a 1 o'clock 7-inning game and then a 7 o'clock 7-inning game, that's stupid. You might as well just make those nine inning games. Yeah, I've seen the back-to-back games in the minors, and it's really handy for seeing all the players. Like, you know, some guys will get a game off here or there, and they'll get an excuse to sit down. But usually you see, like, all the uh, position players you want to see, and then most of the relievers you want to see too. So that's why I enjoy just seeing them back-to-back. And imagine for fans who maybe go to one or two games a year, you know, don't get there all that often, there's really not a chance of having your favorite player have the day off. Yeah, and I think it's worthwhile to be in a stadium. <laughs> unless your favorite, <laughs> unless your favorite player is Zach Collins. <laughs> That's true. That's true. But it, 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 it's worthwhile to be at a stadium then for four and a half hours, if you're mm-hmm. getting 14 innings of baseball with like an intermission. Let's call it that. It felt like an intermission uh, where you're getting 30 minute, 30 to 45 minutes to go get food. Or grab another beer because alcohol sales have resumed. Yeah. Yeah. If you're going to do seven inning doubleheaders, they should be straight doubleheaders. We agree. I think this is a philosophical topic when it comes to just everything in baseball. And it's what do we learn from bum slaying in baseball? Because that's what happened this weekend. You have a contending team in the Chicago White Sox bum slay a Baltimore Orioles team that is going to be going on for two weeks before seeing their next win. They haven't won in two weeks. It's been a long time. And I think someone tweeted out that the Baltimore Orioles and the Arizona Diamondbacks are like 7-43 and 43 combined in the month of May. I mean, you just have teams nosediving right now, and the Baltimore Orioles are one of those teams. We've been doing this podcast for eight seasons now, Jim. We have seen the White Sox be the bums that the contending teams were taking advantage of and beating them up for easy wins. But now the White Sox are good, and they are slaying the bums like Baltimore. So what do we learn from bum slaying, Jim, that helps you understand better about what we are watching when it comes to the White Sox game to game? Well, you know, seeing the reaction from Yankees fans and writers to seeing the Yankees getting swept by the Tigers... Uh, who are coming in uh, with the second worst record, coming in a series with the second worst record in the American League and going and sweeping the Yankees. And the Yankees committed three errors and just basically got beaten by uh, uh, Tarek Skubal. And they were searching for answers. And Aaron Boone <laughs> has nothing good to say to the reporters. Like, uh, bum slang is better than getting beaten by bums and having everybody bummed out as a result. So... I'm all for it. Now, we talked about it before, and just uh, it's very refreshing, not just in, you know, I, I guess for the simple reason of winning games they should win, but also just the idea of, you know, we've talked about before, the idea of like when looking at the White Sox in a competitive division, in a competitive league, uh, like I'm thinking specifically like 2015, 2016, 
saying like, well, the White Sox are trying to break in. They have a better roster than previous years, but how are they going to get these wins? Like, how are they going to get to 85 wins? Like, who are, you know, where are these losses going to come from? And, you know, I mentioned that, you know, if you look around the table and don't know the sucker, it's you. And that's how it kind of felt when it came to the losses. Like, if you don't know who's going to be taking these losses, Mm -hmm. who's going to be uh, basically the the other side of a zero-sum equation, then it's probably the White Sox, especially a White Sox team that still has, like, Robin Ventura and still has uh, the... Rick Hahn front office that couldn't sign free agents, uh, all that sort of stuff. So this year, seeing them go into a Baltimore series like they did against Kansas City, uh, taking on a team with a long losing streak and, and extending that losing streak to now a preposterous length, um, that's just, I think, very reassuring in terms of the quality of the team. Uh, and you know, t- to, I-, I guess, follow up on the conversation we had previewing the series, like I wanted to see them give Matt Harvey a hard time. They gave Matt Harvey a hard time. And that's kind of what I'm looking for. Like just, you know, when they have weaknesses against a certain pitcher of certain handedness or a pitcher is struggling, you know, bullpen struggling, a, a starting pitcher needs to get on a roll. Like if they use these teams to a- accomplish those goals, that's fine. You know, it's, it's superior to the alternative. Yeah, in the last 10 games, the White Sox are 6-4. They had a really good week. I mean, they won two out of three against St. Louis. They swept Baltimore. It's a great homestand. They go 6-1 and one in the seven games. Uh, and then, of course, the other three losses come from the New York Yankees, as Jim just mentioned, that got swept by the Detroit Tigers. The, the one thing that I learned from this series is that the starting pitching for the White Sox is agnostic to who they are facing. Example is Lucas Gilito with the bases loaded situation to be able to navigate and get out of that jam and how pumped he was. Same thing with Lance Lynn. Lance Lynn getting super amped up. Uh, they are treating the Baltimore Orioles just like they were treating any team, especially like the Minnesota Twins or Cleveland Dylan this C's week. Dylan screaming. Yeah, Dylan C's showing emotion. Uh, that. That's something that I I think is a good thing that at times like we just like you mentioned with the Yankees. That's a really good example, Jim, because it seems like the Yankees took their foot off the gas. Garrett Cole did not have a good start against Detroit. And maybe the Yankees go into Detroit thinking that, well, this is going to be an easy weekend. And lo and behold, they get swept. And now it's a terrible weekend for them. It's a great weekend if you're a Detroit Tigers fan. But if the White Sox starting pitching is going to treat every team that they're going to be facing as world beaters, and they're going to try to bring their A game every single start out. That's how you make these series really one-sided, even though the offense isn't clicking uh, at its potential for the White Sox at this moment. I mean, winning three-to-one ball games against Baltimore, okay, three runs is not a whole lot against this type of pitching, and it's not very good pitching for Baltimore. But if the White Sox rotation is going to continue to pitch at this level, Jim, I mean, where they're only giving up one run a game, then three runs seems like a lot. And that's a good point. And I think that's partially the result of the stability the White Sox have had in the rotation. Like aside from Lance Lynn missing a little bit of time and Dylan Cease had a brief COVID outage. They basically had everybody being able to make the starts on schedule every five days in the same order. And when you have the kind of role they're on, and, and this is a case, I think, where winning uh, generates its own chemistry, uh, I, I think there is a tendency or a, a natural um, 
outcome to where there is a little bit of one-upsmanship or, you know, kind of like in bowling with a beer frame, like not wanting to be the, <laughs> the guy who doesn't get the strike. Yeah, great analogy. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah, hold up his uh, end and, and, and has to pay. Like, that's kind of how I look at it. And they've been basically knocking down every start. And, and to the point where, you know, the bullpen is rested enough to where Tony La Russa can pull Lance Lynn after five innings and, and basically count on, you know, I think he's hoping on two relievers, had to use three. But, you know, had the flexibility to say, you know, Lance Lynn could maybe go an inning or two more, but we want him for short rest so we can pull him, pull him back and have him go, you know, patch him into a start on Wednesday and be fine with it. So it, it produces results um, that, that I think uh, – allows some competition in the rotation and it makes a lot things a lot easier for bullpen planning, which begets better rotation planning. And there's just a whole lot of benefits all the way around. Looking at starting pitchers with at least a minimum of 40 innings pitched to start 2021, Carlos Rodon and Lance Lynn are one and two leading the American league in ERA. The only pitcher, the only starting pitcher in major league baseball that has a lower ERA pitching at least 40 innings, is Jacob deGrom. Mm. Like, when was the last time that happened where the White Sox had two starting pitchers, one and two in ERA? I'm thinking like maybe... <laughs> was the 2005 rotation that good with Contreras when he got hot? Uh, oh, are you talking about like four, like just chunks of a season? Yeah. Uh, maybe like, I think Burley and Garland got off to really good starts, so maybe they started similarly. Okay before regressing a little bit or maybe they just yeah i know garland was on a hot streak when it came to wins uh like piling up uh victories but yeah let me look into that i i love the beer frame analogy though because yeah cease has a big game it's my turn i'm gonna have a big game g leto striking out 12 i'm gonna go strike out 13 you know i think it's this type of collaboration between the white Sox starting pitching staff that again i'm gonna keep harping on this We didn't have a lot of confidence in the White Sox starting pitching staff. I think anyone that covers the White Sox prior to 2021 would tell you that I think the weak point is going to be the starting pitching and the offense is going to have to score a lot of runs to make up for some concerns in the number four, number five spots in the White Sox starting rotation. But right now, the guy that's buying beers in the beer frame, Jim, is Dallas Keuchel. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, and he's not pitching terribly, you know, Keuchel's being Keuchel. But if I, if we're going to have Carlos Rodon as your number five starter, lead the league in ERA, Lance Lynn, the guy that you acquired before this season to help solidify the rotation is number two. Lucas Gilito's had three straight great starts and he's getting back on track. And Dylan Cease has got a below three ERA. If you're a White Sox fan right now and you're going to be writing to Jim and I, hey, does this have a 2005 similar feel? At least on the starting pitching staff, yeah. I mean, as a White Sox fan, you got to have a ton of confidence in every single game right now because of just the way the starting pitchers are going. They're going to give you six to seven quality innings and you're going to feel great for six to seven innings as long as the offense scores three runs and that's not a lot of runs. Well, even like the Yankees series, which was a, you know, a, a, a sweep, you know, losing all three, you know, two of the losses were walk-offs. And even then, like, even if you just treat a loss as a loss and, and don't give points or moral victories for margin, it's still like the only three-game losing streak they've had all year. 
Mm-hmm. That's what's impressive. And then to come back from that three-game losing streak and win six of seven, that's, uh, uh, that's terrific. It is. So that's that's what I have learned from the bum slaying this weekend is the White Sox starting pitching staff is agnostic to whomever they are facing. And that that's a good mentality to have. And it's a great way to continue to stay in rhythm and to stay on track. But as Jim, as Jim pointed out, the other option is being like the Yankees taking the foot off the gas and all of a sudden you're swept and uh-oh, uh, now you have a bigger deficit in your division as the Tampa Bay Rays are not slowing down. Uh, so yeah, it's a good weekend for the White Sox, but I know there's been a lot of conversations of, well, Jake Lamb hit a home run. Uh, how does that impact Adam Engel? I, I, I don't know. Uh, honestly, I, I don't know what we take away as far as, you know, Jose Bray <laughs> had a great weekend offensively, but it, Baltimore's pitching. It, it's bad, Jim. Like they should have had a good weekend. Yeah. Although Jake Lamb, um, I think we can back off the jokes temporarily. Like just being the you reflexive. You are buying Jake Lamb stock. I'm not buying. It's it's a case where like, yeah, I wrote about this on Sunday morning talking about Billy Hamilton after his homer and just the amount of support that Billy Hamilton has both in the dugout and in the stands. And you know, after I wrote that, I heard a story about uh, from uh, Mr. Anorama on Twitter talking about how Billy Hamilton was just like making bets or like saying like, uh, you're know, making friendly wagers or um, kind of uh trying to have fans guess the outcome of certain at bats and such and, and, and interacting back and forth. So he's making fans along the dugout, making fans in center field. Tim Anderson's uh, hyping him up and, and Tim Anderson, like, you know, the, what has been said about him, you know, being in Billy Hamilton's corner, not just, you know, in the dugout, but in, in, or in the clubhouse, but in the dugout and even on the on deck circle, he's, he is shouting encouragement. He's like the, the, the best friend you could ever have. Uh, but just seeing the kind of groundswell of support he's gotten, and then you see Jake Lamb having you know uh, a big moment and helping swing a game with uh, with a homer. It's you know not necessarily something to buy, you know, and that's kind of how I'm looking at it. It's like I don't know if it's true, but like like it's better than the alternative. But it's better than him not producing, and it's also just uh, kind of a product of right field. As long as Adam Engel doesn't really have functioning legs under him, and is going to have an OPS that starts with four for an entire month. Uh, you got to have somebody standing in there. So whether it's, you know, Lamb doing it or Billy Hamilton doing it or Danny Mendick standing in, just whatever, get, you know, turns the day on the calendar over uh, with a chance of contributing something is welcome. And to have Lamb, you know, having a, um, he's got a WRC plus, I think of over 130 now. He's, you know, maybe he's bum slaying himself into contention, but at least he's doing something and is the better roster play than he looked like a week or two into the season. My angst against Lamb, I will admit, is misplaced. I did a segment for ESPN 1000 on Sunday, and that's what I t- that's what I told Fred Hubner is that my I, I I'm not satisfied with Jake Lamb, and if Jake Lamb I tweeted this out doesn't hit against Matt Harvey, you got to DFA him because I don't know who Jake Lamb can hit if he's not going to be able to hit Matt Harvey. I may I, it's misplaced because really it should be placed on Adam Eaton. Like the, the right yeah. field situation uh, is very much unresolved and we are heading into June and, and I get it. Adamine's got a hamstring issue. Okay. But the White Sox need a little bit more power in this lineup. And if you think Jake Lamb could fake it well enough in right field, then maybe Jake Lamb should get more playing time just to be 100% sure because if Rick Hahn is set on having Adam Engel part of this 26-man roster, 
there's a somewhat difficult roster decision coming up unless it is, you know, already been foretold that Danny Mendick is going to be optioned back to Charlotte because he's got options and that's where Adam Ingle comes into play, but you still Mm got to play these guys. And uh, if Adam Eaton is still not 100% healthy and you still need home runs against these righty pitchers, uh, then I then go ahead, give Jake Lamb more starts, more plate appearances, because you need you need to start getting answers, like firm answers, because we're we're counting down the days, Jim, before the trade deadline starts, and with the team's nose diving right now, like we mentioned, like with the Arizona Diamondbacks, we're gonna have a better idea on who's gonna be selling real soon in the league. Yeah, I'm gonna have a post coming up, I think, on Tuesday, because that's the official past the halfway point to the trade deadline uh, and, and the number of games before Ju- uh, July 31st will pass the halfway point uh, towards, you know, that, that date and that single trade deadline too. So, you know, August trades and transactions are a lot harder to swing. The uh, thing I think will, it will happen is that, you know, Danny Mendick would be the first guy down, but then maybe subject to Adam Eaton, whether he needs to go on the injured list or not, maybe Angle coming back is the way that Eaton goes on the injured list. Right now he's kind of holding down a roster spot in case emergency breaks out. Uh, but, you know, he hasn't played in a couple of days. Um, the White Sox seem to have options coming to life, at least, you know, in, in spurts, like with, you know, Billy Hamilton's two homers in a row and Jake Lamb, you know, maybe doing some bum sling of his own. You know, maybe once... Angles back and provides another outfield option. Maybe that's when Eaton takes a break. Uh, they'll have one Adam E from Ohio in the outfield, and that's good enough. But uh, if not, if Eaton's still stubborn or everybody's around the White Sox is stubborn about Eaton being in the lineup or being on the roster, then it seems like Danny Menick's just a – I think that's his role, to shuffle in and out of the rotation because it seems like when he's uh, – when he gets any kind of regular run, yeah, the, the there are diminishing returns. Um, yeah, just the production starts drying up. The walks start turning into strikeouts. Uh, pitchers are more aggressive facing him. So I think he's not a bad guy to send down and then bring back up because when, you know, when he, when he comes back up, you don't feel bad about it. You just feel bad about it when he, you know, starts uh, accruing maybe three or four starts in a week. So back to the Jake Lamb and Adam E comparison, Adam Eaton in 113 at bats against right-handed pitching this season is hitting 221 with a 338 on base percentage and he's slugging 389. Jake Lamb in just 37 at bats, so not many plate appearances this season, is hitting 216 with a 356 on base percentage and slugging 486. Like if the White Sox need more power, to me Jim, it makes more sense to have Jake Lamb in the lineup than Adam Eaton. But Adam Eaton's the better right fielder defensively. And yeah, and that's why he's going to be in the lineup. And, you know, maybe the White Sox were thinking, well, Jake Lamb can get DH opportunities. But yes, I'm sorry. You're mean Mercedes has tied down the DH spot. Uh, so that's kind of where my angst is. My it, it was misdirected. It's really about the right field situation because we're going into June and I still don't think it's a resolved position. Yeah, I will say, you know, maybe I feel a little bit better about Lamb because he did show signs of life after going to Oakland last year in September. Um, you know, it's small sample is a small sample last year, small sample this year. But when you're looking at his last 30 games or 29 games, yeah, it's, he's batting 250, uh, OBP of 344, slugging percentage of 524 over about 100 plate appearances. Okay. So it's it's something. 
It's a production the White Sox can use. I just, I don't mind seeing him in the lineup. I don't like seeing him in, in the corner spot, especially right field, because uh, he he looks very tentative out there. Like he'd rather have anybody else take charge. And it's the kind of, um, you'd almost rather him take charge, even if he's not the best guy to uh, catch a ball, just because when you have outfielders going back and outfielders or infielders going out, outfielders coming in, I think it's incumbent on the outfielder to, call the infielder off because the infielder tends to call himself off and cause more problems. Um, so that's why I don't like seeing him in a corner spot. Like he's just not well suited for it, but yeah, if they have to, uh, you know, if Adam Engel comes back, I think that'll help a little bit and then just try to play him sparingly. But if that's the only place to play him and he's still showing a perfectly cromulent bat, then may as well just while there's, while Adam Eaton is just, uh, you know, has no legs basically. All right, before we get to your minor league report, there's one other item uh, that I wrote down on a post-it note and I wanted to discuss with you, and that's the situation in center field. Who would you rather see get more playing time at the moment in center field, Billy Hamilton or Lurie Garcia? To the extent that I care, I think Larry. I, I, I'm kind of going more on the Billy Hamilton side. I enjoy, I enjoy Hamilton being out there. I don't enjoy them. Like basically, you know, we talked about it before that I just didn't like seeing them in the same lineup. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that happens often. <laughs> yeah. So then that's why I'm, I'm kind of pro Jake Lamb or, or becoming more and more uh, a Jake Lamb fan by the day. I'm in the Jake Lamb flock. I don't know. You're in the flock. But just, <laughs> yeah, just because he prevents that. And, you know, when they're both contained to center field and they're both, okay plays in center field for an emergency, especially like Billy Hamilton, like serves a purpose. Like he, he can go and get him in center. And if he's batting eighth or ninth and his job is to run down, uh, fly balls basically. And the other eight hitters in the lineup are expected to do the damage. I'm fine with that. So, uh, but I think Garcia has more life in him. I think, you know, I was going through, uh, Hamilton's game log and there's just a lot of empty at bats around some kind of cool things. And it's easy when it's that kind of, when he's making the kind of fan-pleasing impact that he makes uh, with individual at-bats, it makes it easy to overlook the amount he's not doing uh, over the course of three or four games. And so that's why I don't really want to see too much playing time slide his way because I think that could, you know, uh, throw it out of balance and all of a sudden, you know, he's kind of racking up a debt in terms of... uh, uh, bad plate appearances overwhelming the good ones. And I think Garcia is more likely to have good ones, but as long as they're, you know, in a timeshare, basically, I don't really don't care if it's 50, 50 or 60, 40 in one direction. I think just keeping them in the same spot on the diamond is the most important thing. When I watch Lurie Garcia, I've just, mm-hmm. I don't know if he's going to get hot, right? Like his numbers are still poor. And it's like, he can be a good player. We've seen him be a good player for the White Sox and be somebody that, you know, should be getting the playing time that he's getting. I just, I, you put it a good way to the extent that I care, but we're dealing with this until Luis Robert could prove that he can run. I know he's off crutches right now as he posted on his Instagram. So that's great as far as in his recovery. And we may be seeing Adam Ingles soon, so this could make the entire conversation mute, uh, moot, I should say. Uh, and Adam Ingles would be your starting center fielder instead of Lurie Garcia or Billy Hamilton. But if it's a coin flip and you know, you're deciding who's going to start on that day between Garcia and Hamilton in center field, 
I think I side with Hamilton because he's a better center fielder than Garcia. Yeah, I think I maybe side with him just because I enjoy the smiles. <laughs> yeah. The yeah. Although uh, although Garcia's got a great one too. They both have uh, very winning smiles. So good job uh, on their dental work. <laughs> More smiles, the better. Well, again, White Sox fans have a good reason to smile after this week. They, the White Sox go six and one, and uh, they make their way to Cleveland for Memorial Day. So they'll play four games in three days before they turn around and head back home for another seven-game homestand against Detroit and Toronto. Jim and I will preview that series in Cleveland coming up later in the show, but we're going to be taking a quick break on the Sox Machine podcast uh, with the word from our sponsors, and after our sponsors, coming up next, Jim has your minor league report. If you love listening to us here on the Sox Machine. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Podcast. What's stopping you from grabbing a mic and starting your own show? And there's no better place to host than Blue Wire Hustle. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to the community discord and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. And on top of that, we'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and all other listening platforms. And the best part is you can get all of this for only $15 a month, the same rate as any other hosting site would charge you just for the initial setup. So if you're ready to do more than just listening to us talk about the White Sox, then make your voice heard in Hustle. Acceptance into the program is limited, so get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com join, and you can check out the description box in this episode to find out more, but that's bwhustle.com join. The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff, and it affects everything which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed, Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcasts. 
All right, minor league report time. We'll start in Charlotte, where Jimmy Lambert received a call to start one of today's doubleheader games against Cleveland. Since Michael Kopech is still on the bereavement list and has a hamstring issue of some undetermined severity. Lambert earned the gig partially due to timing and partially due to his numbers, which took a turn for the better after pitching somewhere besides Truist Field in Charlotte. He threw three innings apiece over his last two starts in Durham and Norfolk, and he struck out 11 over those six innings against four hits and three walks, allowing just a solo homer of damage each time. Jonathan Stever pitched Sunday and struggled, and Renato Lopez looked like himself, for better or for worse. The starting pitcher who is doing the heaviest lifting is KBO veteran Mike Wright, but he's not on the 40-man roster. Jace Fry might beat everybody to Chicago. He's thrown a couple of scoreless hitless rehab appearances with one walk and four strikeouts over two innings. Adam Engel's doing just as well in his own comeback, going 6-for-16 with a homer, double, and a walk against just three strikeouts. The rest of the offense followed suit with strong work at the plate, even if it was lighter in power. Gavin Sheets and Brian Goodwin both went 7-for-16 with six singles apiece. Jake Berger went 6-for-17 with a double and a reasonable strikeout rate. Blake Rutherford saw the most action of anybody and batted 280 with three doubles. In Birmingham, Mike Rodolfo salvaged what could have been a relapse with a big Sunday, going three for four with a double and two walks in the Baron 17-4 victory over the Rocket City Trash Pandas. Even with the big finale, he went four for 22 over the past week, with 12 strikeouts over 26 plate appearances. Carlos Perez, Taekwon Forbes, and Romy Gonzalez all struggled, with Gonzalez going one for 20 with 11 strikeouts after a sizzling start to his season. But Birmingham is 16-8 because the pitching remains strong, especially after the addition of Jason Billis, who threw seven innings of two-run ball over his first appearances at AA this past week. After issuing 61 walks in A-ball in 2019, the 2018-13th rounder has walked just two batters against 33 strikeouts over 21 and two-thirds innings. Cade McClure also had a bounce-back week with nine strikeouts over five, and Connor Pilkington and Blake Battenfield have been good for a solid five every time out. The Winston-Salem Dash continue to hover at 500 despite similarly lackluster offense. The Dash lineup mostly rides the bat of Luis Curbelo for better or for worse. He went just 5 for 21 with 10 strikeouts over the last six games, but three of those hits went for extra bases. Also, 2020 undrafted free agent signing Duke Ellis went 5 for 15 with three walks and two stolen bases from the Dash's center field spot. The pitching staff lost Billis, but that just gives Davis Martin more room to breathe. Martin is up to 31 strikeouts against four walks over 21 innings, including 10 strikeouts over five his last time out against Hickory. He was selected a round after Billis in the 2018 draft, and he might be following him to Birmingham in short order, although a vacancy might be difficult to come by right now. And then there's Kannapolis. The Cannonballers lost all six games to the Carolina Mudcats in Zebulon, North Carolina, to drop to 2-22 on the season, and even Jose Rodriguez is starting to cool down, going 4-for-22 over the last week. At least he struck out only four times compared to somebody like DJ Gladney, who went 3-for-20 with 11 Ks. There are a couple items of silver lining. Brian Ramos has started to get it going, batting 381 with two homers, a double, and three walks over the six-game series, which is a lot of production around eight strikeouts. Prep picks Lency Delgado and Cabrera Weaver also homered twice. The pitching's been the biggest issue, including rough starts for Yolovan Sylvan and Drew Dahlquist, who combined to allow 11 runs over three and two-thirds innings. Matthew Thompson was also roughed up on Monday, but he was able to close out his week by striking out six over three shutout innings, so maybe this upcoming week will be better for everybody. At least Jared Kelly got to sit this one out as the White Sox are managing his workload. 
That's it for the minor league report. Visit Sox Machine on Tuesday for Farm Fortnite, a bi-weekly summary of the White Sox farm system that covers all prospects of note, exclusive to those who support Sox Machine on Patreon. If you do not yet subscribe, you can do so at patreon.com slash Machine. The Chicago White Sox now make their way to Cleveland, Ohio, as they'll play four games in three days, including a doubleheader on Memorial Day, Monday, and then they'll have a Tuesday night game, and then getaway day is Wednesday afternoon. So if you enjoy afternoon baseball, you are going to get more of it from the White Sox in this series. The Cleveland Indians are currently 28-23. and 23. They are second place in the American League Central. Behind the Chicago White Sox, three and a half games, as the White Sox did make get one game uh, as far as add to their lead over in, against Cleveland over the last 10 games. The Cleveland Indians are just five and five in their last 10 games as they split a doubleheader against the Toronto Blue Jays on Sunday. The Cleveland Indians have a negative seven run differential, uh, so they are currently overachieving right now with their win-loss record. The season series between the White Sox and Indians is four and four. So after this series, uh, Cleveland and the White Sox will only have seven more games against each other in 2021. Your pitching problems for this series for Monday. Again, this is going to be a doubleheader. The first game is going to start at 2.10 p.m. Central Time. Tristan McKenzie will be starting that game for Cleveland. Their starter for game two is still to be determined. For the White Sox, they haven't sorted out who's starting which games yet. But we do believe that Carlos Rodon will start one of the two games. The other starter is going to be Jimmy Lampert, which is really interesting. And then for the White Sox on Tuesday night at 5.10 p.m. Central Time, it is Dylan Cease on the mound for the White Sox. And on getaway day, Wednesday, 12.10, it is Lance Lynn on short rest. And for Monday's doubleheader, uh, I again, I know White Sox fans that are not the biggest fans of the seven-inning doubleheader. The White Sox are 7-1 and one in 2021 in seven-inning doubleheader games. They were 0-2 in 2020. All right, Jim, a, a lot of uncertainty when it comes to the pitching probables for this series. And it is a key series because from a Cleveland perspective, this is an opportunity. If Cleveland could win three out of four against the White Sox, or if they could sweep the White Sox at home, uh, they can get themselves back in first place in the American League Central. If they do not perform well against the White Sox, uh, if they don't get a split, or if they lose three out of four, or they lose all four games, then all of a sudden the White Sox have a big cushion within the division. So this is a pretty big series for Cleveland if they are still trying to make the American League Central interesting as the calendar flips from May to June. But with so much uncertainty when it comes to the pitching problems for this series, what are you focusing right now uh, between this series with the White Sox and Indians? Well, I'm hoping that uncertainty, uh, especially on Cleveland side when it comes to scheduling pitchers, is you know product of just their instability, uh, especially when it comes to control. They've walked, uh, they're, they're third in baseball with walks in the month of May. They've walked 113 batters uh, over 227 innings, which is very uncharacteristic when you think of a staff that is headed by uh, Shane Bieber and Zach Plesek. The White Sox have walked 78 batters. So you're talking about like a uh, almost a 40-walk difference in May alone between the two pitching staffs and probably going into the season, if you were wondering, like, you know, if you put that number, uh, 
if you put the uh, walks and innings against each other and, and said team A and team B and try to guess the team, you'd flip them. You would think the White Sox would be the ones with control problems with Rodon and Cease and, uh, and, and the bullpen struggling the way it is, but they've had a lot of walks. Even Shane Bieber has been walking more guys than normal. And uh, Class A has been just you know, kind of uh, battling control issues at the closer role. Brian Shaw has been walk walking more guys. So there should be opportunities to generate traffic. It's just more of that, um, you know, the, I guess the irritating or aggravating part of watching the White Sox sometimes in this season and the last couple of seasons is their weakness against right-handed pitching and not being able to capitalize on those rallies. But it seems like there should be lots of traffic to at least generate those runners and scoring position opportunities. How do you feel about Lance Lynn pitching on short rest this early in the season? Uh, well, with Michael Kopech being uncertain, that's, um, you know, something I'm wondering about. He, you know, he kind of hobbled off the field awkwardly and then he went on the bereavement list. So it, we don't really know what his severity is and, and, you know, what that hamstring looks like. And also there's not really a whole lot of compelling arms in the bullpen to bring up either to rotate for like a, a Johnny Holstaff game. So if you already have one double header involved and you're calling Jimmy Lambert, who's had a couple of good starts in a row, but for three innings at a time. So he's maybe not the most proven bet to, you know, try to go five, um, then the options are pretty much limited. So it might be worth a look just to, I guess, as a, um, you know, maybe a postseason preview to understand like how guys do on short rest. And I think, you know, LaRussa did well to limit Lynn's outing the start before. Like I saw people wondering like, uh, you know, why is he being pulled after five? Why is Bummer in? Why is Bummer, you know, loading the bases nobody out when Lynn could be pitching? And that was when I looked at the calendar and realized like, oh yeah, they they started Keiko and Lynn the same day because uh, they had two double headers over the course of three days. Like the options are limited, especially if Kopech is not right. So as long as we don't exactly know what's up with him, like if, if you were able to come off the bereavement list, I would be happy starting him for like three or four innings, seeing what happens. Uh, but if he's not an option, I don't know where else to go. So you, you may as well use a guy like Lynn and then hopefully make it up to him with rest, you know, following an off day. Yeah, that's the way it does look because if he does make this start on Wednesday, uh, June 2nd, the White Sox have an off day on Monday, June 7th. So he'll get about six days of rest before making his next start. Uh, which again, you're making it up to him as far as trying to get into rhythm, but the way that he's been throwing and he's kind of got that bulldog mentality, Jim, uh, that I, I, I don't think Lance Lynn really cares. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he threw a hundred pitches in this start. I, I would, I would yeah. feel uncomfortable. Uh, just be like, Oh, I don't want him to go back on the injured list. He's throwing too well. Uh, but it'd be interesting to see on how long he does last. And I, I think the goal is obviously five innings again, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I imagine he would expect six because I imagine he expects to go seven. So he'll have to ratchet it down one, but uh, you know, it, it reminds me of the whole bulldog thing of Jake Peavy and just how, you know, Peavy got hurt and Peavy got overused, but that wasn't his fault. That was the fault of, you know, Ozzie Guillen and Don Cooper having their little rift and not communicating and uh, Peavy ultimately winning every single arguments. It's, you know, incumbent on Tony La Russa and Ethan Katz to keep his workload in check. And so I think they did a decent job uh, the start before just to make sure that he wasn't going to be coming into a short rest start with 110 pitches uh, on his arm from the previous time around. But I think it's, you know, just try not to ask too much from him. You know, if he's got five innings and 90 pitches, probably a good time to pull the hook unless, um, you know, the 
Labor was early on. He's been coasting ever since. And I think it's probably also, you know, important for the defense to play well behind him because, you know, he's, it seems like he's been the guy to get the worst support, um, you know, whether it's errors in the field or Yasmani Grandal committing a catcher interference. Just seems like there's always something adding <laughs> pitches to his pitch count. And so I'm hoping that this time around, given that, you know, the White Sox are asking a little bit more from him, that the uh, defense can step up and, and remove some of the load. He's still second in the American League in ERA. Despite all of this, uh, well, I think he's got a, a few unearned runs on his uh, tab, so uh, it does show up there. But yeah, he's he's been done a good job uh, pitching through it. Just more, it, it seems to cost him, you know, the ability to face a few more batters at the end of a start. Well, hopefully, the White Sox play well defensively behind Lance Lynn. They play well for the entire series. One thing I'm going to be looking for is the offense. Uh, I would like to see the offense generate a little bit more run support. Uh, especially for their pitchers. It is Cleveland, though. They still do pitch well, even though they put a lot of men on base, as you were mentioning earlier, Jim, as far as the walks. There will be a lot a lot of traffic, and I, I do think that the White Sox will generate a lot of opportunities with runners in scoring position. I would just like them to be a little bit more effective than they have been because um, if there's one thing to nitpick about the White Sox in this 6-1 week against St. Louis and Baltimore is that they did squander some really golden opportunities with runners in scoring position uh, and not taking advantage of those opportunities. And uh, But this, is, this seems to be a league-wide problem right now, and the White Sox are one of the better-performing teams with runners in scoring position, but I like them to be a little mm-hmm. bit more effective in this series against Cleveland because if, if you can, if the White Sox can play well offensively in these four games... And by playing well, I mean like being able to generate five runs in each of these games. You're going to give yourself a shot to really win this series easily, like three out of four or even sweep Cleveland. And now we would be talking about a seven-game lead for the Chicago White Sox in the month of June. This is a, you know, I'm thinking of that your mean Mercedes at bat where, you know, he hit a screamer grounder, like a one hopper, Freddie Galvis makes the pick uh, and, and ends up getting the inning when really, you know, if maybe most of the shortstops or at least, you know, maybe half the shortstops aren't as lucky with the ball finding their glove the way it did. And, you know, uh, Mercedes gets a two run single out of it and that game looks a whole lot better. So they've, they had some decent swings and they, they built some rallies. It wasn't like the characteristic struggles of like previous seasons to where like Jose Abreu expanded the zone and got ugly. Like you're just trying to do too much. It does seem like between uh, Abreu and Moncada, Mercedes a little bit, and then Grandal has kind of picked it up a little bit too to at least generate traffic. Um, you know, and Andrew Vaughn stepping up as well. That they have enough guys, I think, that they trust with runners on, even if the results aren't there yet. Um, I'm not seeing like the the crazy at bats, the crazy swings, the what are you doing swings. Uh, as much so I'm more or less encouraged especially as you mentioned uh, that runners in scoring position uh, and and performances with the runners on third uh, across the league is really like it's never been tougher to hit with a runner on third than it is now and that's just something you have to keep in mind Uh, the one guy I'm you know while looking at the Indians numbers in May uh, and over the last week like Eddie Rosario is finally starting to pick it up and he's a guy I'm watching just because I'm kind of keeping tabs loosely on everybody who might have been a decent option for right field with the White Sox. And, you know, really, you know, Adam Eaton, Jock Peterson, um, you know, Rosario is another one that all kind of signed for a similar amount. And, 
Eaton was the one that I was least impressed by. And so far, Peterson's been able to pass him. Rosario's been more or less about the same as Eaton. But uh, I'm kind of waiting for Rosario to get on one of those runs that he had with the with the Twins, where he'd get up to 30 homers and 100 RBIs. Uh, and last week, at least, it seemed like he was actually picking up towards that. So if the White Sox can keep him in check and keep me from, like, updating my ledger <laughs> to wonder <laughs> why the White Sox rushed into signing Eaton, that would be appreciated. Yeah, and uh, hopefully no situations late in games where Jose Ramirez can quickly change or sway on how the outcome goes because uh, that guy, the last couple of seasons, he, just got to give him respect. He's been phenomenal in these high leverage situations for Cleveland against the White Sox. So hopefully uh, the White Sox are not in that situation at all this series against Jose Ramirez because he seems to love facing the White Sox. As of late, but we'll, we will recap this series between the White Sox and the Indians later this week on Wednesday, June 2nd at night during Sox Machine Live, which you can watch on our YouTube page at youtube.com slash Machine or on SoxMachine.com. And we'll also preview the upcoming four game series against the Detroit Tigers. But coming up next on this podcast, you guys had a lot of questions for us in P.O. Sox. So let's answer them next. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show, where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where our Patreon supporters, which we have over 530 now, so thank you guys so much for your support, uh, which you can sign up at patreon.com slash Machine. Jim, they have stuffed the P.O. Sox mailbag once again. And our Patreon supporters, you definitely want to stick around because we couldn't answer all of the questions in the in the normal podcast. But if you are a Patreon supporter getting the Patreon podcast feed, we've got a lot of bonus P.O. Sox questions for you in this episode. So sit back, relax, and hunker down. we got a lot of questions to go through here, Jim. So let's start with the first one, and it comes from Mohammed. And Mohammed is asking, Jim, why do you have no taste in regards to the White Sox City Connect uniforms? Coming in hot. Uh <laughs> I think either, you know, I did not present, you know, uh, I guess my ultimate view or at least my my view on the uh, City Connect uniforms independently of the mission. And, and my view on the uniforms as just a standalone uniform, if they just presented it without any kind of tie-in, without any kind of other examples to go off of like the other teams had, I would think it's fine. Like, I, I like the dark uh, fabric with the white pinstripes. I like the, you know, I more or less like the font. I just, the only thing I don't like about it is Southside being one word in that font uh, with no capitalized S on the side. Just kind of, it all kind of mushes together. And it kind of looks like a font, or it kind of looks like a word that was created by somebody who lives outside of Chicago. Like, yeah, I would think, you know, if it's a Chicago uniform, Southside should be two words. If it's City Connect, if you're connecting with the city, you know, it should be two words. And to turn it into one word uh, with with this makes it seem like somebody else made the mistake from out of town and now everybody has to pretend it's uh, something they're planning on doing. So that's what I don't like about it. The hat, I think I can take, like, it, I don't think the hat's good. Just kind of boring, but uh, the, the uniform is great. The thing I don't like about the City Connect uniform is that, you know, they 
when it comes to the White Sox uniforms, like I wouldn't mind seeing a little bit more color. Like it seems like you're seeing uh, the players uh, introduce red into their uniforms with batting gloves and sleeves and socks. Like it seems like they enjoy like the red accents on their, uh, you know, non-uniform equipment accessories. And so, you know, it'd be cool, I think, to, you know, kind of take a nod from that or the stars or what, what have you to just, uh, you know, add a little bit of color. But, you know, it seems like it reminded me of uh, you ever watch like a, a, a cooking or baking competition like Great British Bake Off. And, you know, the, the, the task is you have to bake a challah and somebody bakes a brioche. And it's because, well, it's like, well, they're close enough. And I, you know, I'm more comfortable with French cuisine. I think it's better. So I'm going to try to make a really good brioche and pass it off as hala and then hope they don't catch me or hope it's good enough to where they don't care. And that's what this kind of reminded me of. Just like, you know, you're supposed to take inspiration of the city and they took inspiration from themselves. And that was just a little bit weird. Like, like a little bit, you uh, uh, felt like they missed the points. And that's kind of, you know, when I, when I saw what it was supposed to be, and like the Boston uh, Marathon uniforms that the Red Sox wore, I didn't quite understand, like, I didn't think they were necessarily good looking, but I also thought like, oh, that's kind of neat. I get what they're going for. Um, I didn't realize the Boston Marathon were those colors, but I learned something from having seen their uniforms. Uh, with the white socks and, and, and with their South Side uniforms, like, it just feels like, I think uh, Janice on, on Twitter put it like they took their home uniform and their road grays and put them in a blender and, or their black uniforms and their road grays. And then that's what came out. And that's kind of how it looks, except it was Southside instead of Chicago. So that's just why I felt like it was a little underwhelming in terms of it seemed like the whole idea of the City Connect uniform was to just take a uh, kind of a um, audacious, bold swing at a design concept based on something that was related to the city, like the greater city, and the White Sox kept it insular. Well, John Greenberg of The Athletic, who's been on this show, so I could say that he's a friend of the podcast, uh, he was able to talk to Brooks Boyer about the process, and that's a really good article. I highly recommend going to The Athletic and going through it because – John finds out what the process was and how they beca- how they got these City Connect uniforms. It was a two-year process working with Nike. Uh, and you mentioned somebody out of town came up with this. Yeah, that out-of-towner was Nike out in Oregon <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. in Beaverton coming up with it. As someone that has purchased one of the jerseys, I have to tell you, Jim, from a comfort aspect – it is one of the most comfortable baseball jerseys I have ever donned. It is it is comfy, like almost silk-like. Uh, and I, I'm wondering how that will play out on the field because uh, sometimes baseball jerseys kind of have a, <laughs> a, a heavy feel. Uh, it's like the sign. It's like the Seinfeld plot. <laughs> what do you mean? How do they wash? Another they- Seinfeld episode where. Uh, George wanted them in cotton uniform instead of, I think it was a poly blend because they're more comfortable and softer and lighter, but then they shrink in the wash. Oh, well. And so, you know, it ended up being successful for like one series or one game. And then next time out, they were binding. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's a very comfy jersey. And being at Sports Depot, I know you touched on this as well that, okay, well, the White Sox made a uniform that will sell really well. We went into the store. We stood in line because Kim had a, a, a work meeting that she had to get to. Uh, so we had to be there when the doors opened so we could get back home in time for her to have that meeting. She really 
loved the look, and she really wanted Tim Anderson's jersey. So we get to the Sports Depot. It's 11.50, and there's already a line. Hmm. And we get through the door, and she was smart. She went straight to the Tim Anderson rack. She got her size. We walked away from that area. I saw the Eloy Jimenez uh, rack, and nobody was going to that one. And I thought, hey, he can't play in these. This could be a collector's item one day. So that's why I picked <laughs> that's why I picked Eloy's uh, uniform for the City Connect. Uh, Tim Anderson's uniform in the 30 minutes we were in that store uh, had to be restocked twice. So that was by wow. far the most popular jersey. And it would... What makes sense as far as connecting the dots that the White Sox started this process two years ago, there are no Jose Abreu jerseys in the Sports Depot. The reigning hmm. MVP doesn't have a City Connect uniform that I could buy. Like, I was disappointed. But then I remembered two years ago, Jim, Jose Abreu was going to be a free agent after the season. We didn't know for sure if Abreu was going to be coming back. Of course, hmm. we remember that Abreu publicly was uh, put Rick Hahn in a tough position because Jerry Reinsdorf really wanted Abreu to come back and Abreu really wanted to come back as well. Um, but, it, you know, in that article in The Athletic, Brooks Boyer did say that more uniforms are coming, uh, especially during this week and before the White Sox wear them next Saturday against Detroit, and they should have more players available as well. But the only players that they had, only two of them were actually playing games because you had... Tim Anderson, you had Yohan Makata, and then you had Luis Robert and Eloy Jimenez. <laughs> hmm. So I, I like him. I get your perspective as far as adding an accent color, but there's been some good commentary as well that this is an opportunity or the, for the White Sox for the first time embracing the hip-hop culture side uh, because there has been a, a lot of critiques uh, and commentary about how the White Sox as an organization have not embraced that side uh, as far as the culture, uh, despite being very popular with hip hop artists, especially throughout the 90s and even today and, you know, making Chance the Rapper mad and him ditching the socks cap to, to make his own cap. Uh, yeah, uh, there's a lot of people that are mentioning and that really like the uniform that this is, you know, the White Sox are embracing that part of the South Side more than they ever have. Uh, yeah. I get it. You know, and it's a, like, I really like the, the dark and white cause it reminded me of the Chicago American giants jerseys. Oh, okay. Uh, Negro leagues jerseys. Yeah. And that's, uh, I thought that was the inspiration for that, you know, the, the, the color pattern and they didn't, Nike didn't mention it. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> well I'll pretend it's inspired by the Chicago American giants, but I really like that look. I like that look when uh, they wear it in the, um, the double duty game. Um, that they play at the, uh, they play for the prep players, uh, the city prep players mm -hmm. at uh, guaranteed rate field. Like those uniforms always look great. So I like that kind of inspiration. It's just really, I think just the South side, all one word as somebody who, you know, sees it, you know, kind of mangled by people not from here, uh, or I should say from there because I'm in Nashville right now, but, uh, not, you know, outside the white Sox orbit and outside Chicagoland, uh, to see it all one word and then just it feels like giving in to um, people who didn't know how to spell it. Got it. I'm not crazy about the cap. I will say that. Yeah. I'm, I'm not crazy about the cap. I think you can wear the regular cap with the Southside uniforms. 
and you will be good. Uh, yeah. It's like the yeah. Chicago Tribune Sea. And oh, okay. the Tribune, you know, it's, you know, the Gothic Sea. I mean, like, you know, maybe with that font, there's only, you know, so many ways you can do it. But just like Tribune has never really, you know, done great things for the Sox. No. <laughs> I, I think it's often overblown, but it's just like they didn't, you know, they didn't staff a beat writer on the Sox beat for two or three years. Right. So, yeah, just it's like, yeah, yeah that C is not what I associate with the White Sox. So, yeah, the hat, I think, is a miss. Uniform is fine. It's just I was hoping for, I think, color. But, you know, like you mentioned, I think if it replaced the 83s or it replaced the black jerseys and then maybe they thought of an alternate uniform that was different from the 83s, I think that'd be another way to go. Yeah, I, the 83s are overdone. I know people love them and they want them to stay around forever. But Rob Hart, our good friend, Rob Hart, mentioned that the 83s have had a longer run in the present than they did in the mid eighties. <laughs> yeah. The one thing I will say is like, you know, just not being in Chicago and being places that don't have any connection to Chicago. I see the batter man repurposed a lot for amateur teams for like travel ball for, um, you know, lower levels. It's really popular. So I can see why the white Sox might not want to abandon it, uh, given how often it gets repurposed. But, um, yeah, I just, when they introduced that, you know, when they, when they brought that uniform back, it just also a lot of bad baseball accompanied that. <laughs> so I think that's why I'm more or less uh, content to close the door on that and maybe try other uniform pairings. But yeah, the uniform's fine. I just was hoping that, you know, I didn't mind garish or audacious like the way the Boston uniform was because at least once I had explained to me or once I read the explanation, like I got what they were going for and thought, well, oh, that's kind of, that's different. And I don't mind different. Like, I, I guess I don't, uh, I'm not repulsed by uh, ideas, of, you know, concepts that don't work because it, like at least it's new intellectual property, I guess. The conversations in the city, especially after this weekend and the, the homestand, everybody has an opinion on the White Sox City Connect uniforms. And, and it varies from fine to I absolutely love it. I haven't met anyone that hates it. The next conversation is, all right, what are the Cubs going to do? Because the White Sox went for a look to represent the South side. That was the angle that they were aiming for. And I think everyone assumes the Chicago Cubs are going to do something with the Chicago flag and then try to say that they are representing the entire city of Chicago, which is going to piss off everybody on the South side. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but I think that's, you know, when you when you kind of are insular like that and look towards yourselves for inspiration and, and limit, like, geographically where, where you're coming from, what you're pointing to, you do open that opportunity for somebody to say, okay, we're Chicago. Then. Yeah, well, yeah, that's... So. That's that's a whole other podcast. That is a loaded topic in the city of Chicago when it comes to yep. the north side and the south side. And uh, having lived both sides, uh, yeah, I, I've got thoughts about that. But Mohammed, I hope we answered your question <laughs> about the City Connect uniforms. And thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Michael. And Michael is Michael wrote to us a couple weeks ago when discussing Lucas Giolito. The spin rate on his changeup was brought up. Have there been any changes to that? And is that part of the reason for his return to greatness? 
Well, I, I think for me, looking at his changeup, I was looking more at the velocity gap uh, between his changeup and his fastball. And the fastball wasn't as crisp and powerful as it had been. And the changeup wasn't, um, I, I guess, wasn't proportionally softer. It was, it, it had lost some velocity as well, but you know, the gap had closed from usually 12 to 13 to like 10 to 11. And even though it's a sizable gap for most pitchers when it comes to changeup disparities, it's for the way Giolito uses it for the kind of fluttering floating pitch that he uses and, and, you know, pairs with this fastball and throws high in the zone, just the way hitters were reacting to it, the way hitters, um, you know, squared it up, made a louder contact on it than usual, put it into play more than usual, uh, suggested that it wasn't enough, that it just didn't have that kind of soft action to it, uh, relative to his fastball. And so I think, you know, watching him, uh, come back the last two or three starts. It seems like he's, uh, well, it's a couple things. I, I think the arm slot situation is closer to what it was at his peak. Um, you, you can look at his, uh, the, his release points for all three pitches and like the slider was way off for like a few starts. So that was tipped away. So you can eliminate that pitch from the get-go. And there was also a bit of difference in, in a bit of a lower release point for his fastball and his changeup. And so it had more, fade on it and just more of a circle change action when he really he throws it straight change and doesn't really want that much of a dip and fade to it so it seems like by resolving that and by making the slider more of a threat as well it's allowed his change up to be more of the monster it was before just you know, having that um yeah it's not really a rise with the change up but it doesn't sink as much as other change ups do and it doesn't fade it doesn't tail the way other change ups do it just kind of floats there uh, and and doesn't come down, and and the way hitters swing at it, you know, it, it seems like it doesn't come down, and so, yeah, the the with the changeup, you know, it, it's a it's a weird pitch in that when you look at the underlying stats, you can tell some, you know, there are some characteristics based on you know, how many inches of run, how many inches of of sink, uh, spin rate, and so forth, but it doesn't pop off the page. I think it's a case where. Almost like we talked about Jose Abreu, and you mentioned the fastball stats and the in the, in the uh, his ability to turn around velocity. And I just looked at his RBI column, and I kind of look at Giolito the same way. In that, like when you're watching him and you're just watching the swings, the swings will tell you whether his changeup's any good. And you're starting with the start in Boston, and then the few starts afterwards, it just wasn't the same pitch. And now you're watching him face the Twins and the Cardinals and the Orioles, and you're seeing those weird swings underneath it that no other pitcher gets with his high changeup, except for maybe like Devin Williams with that airbender pitch. Uh, that's just, uh, that's, that shows his changeup is back. And I think it's just the, the fastball being back at 94 to 96 versus 92 to 93 uh, that helps set it up. And it's just uh, the context of his other pitches makes that changeup so much better. Well, Michael, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Mark Sambor and Mark wrote to us, Jim, most recently, with your Mercedes responding with a home run Thursday night, Josh's podcast rants this season have inspired immediate results from Dylan Cease, Jose Abreu, Nick Magical, Jake Lamb, and Lucas Giolito. Can we get an Aaron Bummer rant? Can we? No, not Aaron Bummer. You know, he he started off well in the first month, first part of, of the month uh, from. May 1st through May 14th, he only allowed one hit. And what is it? One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, five appearances. He only allowed one hit 
no walks. He was really good against Cleveland, uh, Kansas City, uh, and Minnesota as far as those appearances. Yeah, he's been struggling as of late. And I'm, I can't pinpoint why he's been struggling. Uh, he's allowed two home runs, which he didn't allow a home run before allowing the home run to Miguel Sano in that loss in Minnesota. Uh, he hadn't allowed a home run since 2019. Uh, which is a, a pretty long stretch for any pitcher. So I don't I don't have anything as far as with Aaron Bummer, as far as rants. And yes, the reverse jinx magic appears to be real. I didn't ask for this power, folks. I just have it. Uh, the, the way that it works, though, is I got to point out something that a player is not doing particularly well, harp on that, and then watch them exceed doing that thing that I just harped on them that they weren't doing well. Wait for aggression to take its course. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the opposite of the SI cover jinx. Like the SI catches people at the top of their game. You catch people at the bottom. I, of their I game. do. Except I, I still don't think a is doing well against the fastball. And I think teams are, I, I think that's a swing plane problem, but that that's, that's for a good blog post. Uh, because I'm noticing his swing playing, it, it, the way that pitchers are just attacking Jose Abreu, for example, they're aiming high with that fastball, and it, it's pretty clear that they are they are avoiding the the barrel as much as possible against Jose Abreu. I totally understand why. I don't understand why John means through a changeup to Jose Abreu. We we mentioned those things as well with my rants. They are doing X really well. They are doing why really poorly. They need to focus on trying to improve why. I don't have one right now. And I feel bad, Mark. I feel bad that I don't have a built-in rant right now. But maybe maybe we should have a request box, a reverse jinx request box. <laughs> and then I can I can do some digging. I, I just don't have anything for Aaron Bummer right now. Yeah, I don't have anything. Yeah, I think with Bummer, you know, given that his pitches are lively and that, you know, his his velocity is there, like it's nothing wrong with the pitches. I think to me, just watching him and and maybe like doing a little armchair diagnosis, it's more like, you know, to me, like the snow homer kind of shocked him a little bit. And since then, like he's been really trying to stay out of the middle of the zone and just trying to like make every pitch a put away pitch, like trying to get, use a slider for like strikeout on, you know, on a one, one count or uh, using a sinker and trying to get like swings over the top of it versus just ground balls and play, which I think is, you know, his, he developed the ability to strike out guys, but I don't see him as like a strikeout pitcher. I see somebody who gets a lot of ground balls and just his stuff is so, you know, he gets such weird contact on his, first few pitches of an at bat when they try to swing that he gets into two strike counts and can put him away at the slider. Like it seems like almost the strikeouts are incidental to just how much action his pitches have when he's just trying to get ground balls. So when I watch him pitch and I watch him like fall behind three and one and, and throwing all these sliders like back foot, like missing um, glove side and, and almost hitting right-handed hitters to me, it seems like, you know, maybe the snow homer by a right-handed hitter made him like think like, oh, I can't, I got way too careless trying to get ground balls or trying to get soft contact. And now um, I need to to focus and bear down and get those swings and misses. And I don't think that's him. I think he's just somebody who has to throw the ball, you know, kind of the, 
Um, I most associate it with Edwin Jackson. Just you know, throw it in the middle of the plate, and your action on the pitches will um, you know do the work for you. And I think Bummer has you know more command than that suggests. But I, I think when he gets in these little ruts that he gets in. Um, it seems like he'd be well off doing that, especially like a lineup against like Baltimore's or a, uh, um, you know, when you don't have like a home run threat at the plate, like, you know, just make them do the work. Like that's with Cody Hoyer. You know, like he got out of the jam that Bummer created and, you know, Hoyer's had problems with that approach, like throwing his sinker in the zone. Like his sinker is not quite Aaron Bummer's sinker. So he just can't throw strikes with it and get ground balls magically. Like they're turning into line drives right now, but at least he threw a line drive and it went to Billy Hamilton center and they didn't score a run on it. So that's kind of how I think bummer has to operate, especially against lesser opponents when nobody's on base, just throw the pitch, like just throw a strike and make lesser hitters prove that they can get it in the air. Cause a lot of times they can't. So Mark, I'm sorry that I don't have a rant right now, but you know what? We'll take requests. So for our Patreon supporters, maybe we'll just set up a Josh reverse jinx rant request box and people can submit players and I could do some dives and you know, I'll build up a rant and then we'll watch that player make me look stupid the next day. So let's go ahead and take those uh, collections. Uh, (laughs) So back to the Jose Abreu fastball thing. Uh, I just pulled up his baseball savant numbers. Mm -hmm. So against righties, the four seamer numbers have bounced back to normal. He's hitting 289 with slugging 500 against the four seamer against righties. And he's doing he's doing awesome. And I've been mentioning that in the commentary as well for Abreu uh, with his struggles at the beginning of the year against fastballs. Abreu's doing great against sliders this year. Uh, Righty's throwing sliders to Abreu. He's hitting 368, and he's slugging 658 this season. And he's still seeing sliders just as much as he has uh, in past season, past seasons. What is really dropping off, though, is sinker and curveball numbers. If you're a righty and you got a sinker, you're kind of owning Jose Abreu right now. Abreu's only hitting 172 and slugging 207 against sinkers. That's a pretty big drop-off from last year in which Abreu hit 463 and slugged 683 against sinkers. And the curveball against righties, he's, he's only hitting 143 and slugging 214. So I see this, and if Cleveland has any pitchers that throw a sinker-curveball combo, guess what? That's what you're throwing to a Jose Abreu. You're not throwing four-seam slider combos. He will kill you right now if you do that. You got to go sinker-curveball. So there you go, Mark. That's my reverse jinx. I want to see if Abreu can hit any of these sinker-curveball combos that Cleveland will throw against him in this series and watch him have two home runs against the sinker. Yeah, it's a good thing that the uh, two-seamer is kind of out of vogue. Or It is. So It is, and, and it makes you wonder, well, maybe it shouldn't be. Uh, talking about velocity, like that's something I'm watching with Mercedes is just... Yeah, and I think you got a good point yeah, there. It's, uh, I, I just looked it up uh, on pitches uh, hotter than, or 94 miles per hour and faster. He only has two batted balls over 100 miles per hour. And then you can include 199, and then everything else has an exit velocity under 95. Wow. he He's not getting hard contact against velocity 94 miles per hour or more. Yeah, like anything that qualifies as above average. 
And the reason why that's odd for those that are listening and being like, okay, what's the big deal about that? When you're getting that type of velocity, it's doing a lot of work for you. You just have to make good enough contact to take advantage of that type of velocity. And it seems like based on those numbers, Jim, he's just having a tough time barreling up that type of velocity. Yeah, he's not squaring it up. Is the bat slow? Could be. Hmm. Hmm. Open discussion. Sox Machine listeners. Let's yeah, dig like into this. When he this. hit the homer, uh, uh, Shane Harmon like, tweeted us saying, did we reverse jinx him? And I was like, I'm not sure no. because that was a 90-mile-per-hour fastball. Yeah. Uh, low and inside from a lefty. Just like, that's, that's, a, yeah, that's some righties change-ups. <laughs> right. We, and we, yeah. we talked about that. If you're going to throw him inside or middle in the first two strikes, he's going to hurt you because he's, he's looking to pull. It's you, it's what can he do on the outside corner pitches in the first two strikes? And can he pull pitches with two strikes? That, that's, that's been the focus point with Mercedes. So, yeah, and I'm also, with you. The home run did not reverse the jinx. And also the exit velocity is the top three, 99, 103, 104, all grounders. Yeah, that type of data would make one go and start watching some film on Baseball Savant and wonder if he's just not getting the barrel through the zone quick enough, if the bat is slower than we thought. Yeah. Ooh. And I have that big sigh because if we can notice this, opposing teams most definitely notice this. Well, I think they have noticed it. Okay. Because I'm seeing more fastballs and just not seeing the damage. Like, oh, that's a two, you know, he's got the, you know, he's getting two strikes on fastballs and then getting fastballs after two strikes. Like, they're kind of going at him. And he's, you know, he's been doing okay, or at least not slumping as hard as other guys with that problem do because he does have that two strike approach and does work enough pitches away and, and does follow enough pitches like with that, with that crouch that he does to draw walks that maybe others couldn't do or, uh, you know, extended bats to get a bloop single here and there. But when it comes to like DH type velocity and, and impact, it seems hmm. like they can neutralize that. Hmm. Well, that's going to be our homework assignment folks. Open discussion item. Let's all together as a community start looking into this and and wonder if your Mercedes can uh, wake up a little bit here or if the White Sox, to come full circle, Jim, uh, may need to give Jake Lamb some DH uh, playing time while Mercedes gets a little bit more time off. Uh, but, Mark, I, there you go, man. I know there's a, a long-winded way of going about it. But, again, we'll, we'll open up that reverse jinx suggestion box we'll start taking your suggestions for josh's reverse jinx but mark thank you so much for your question and that will do it for this po socks thank you to everyone that submitted questions if you would like to submit a question or topic on a future episode of the socks machine podcast the best way of doing it because again we're getting so many questions from our patreon supporters is to become a patreon supporter yourself by going to patreon.com slash machine, where we have several diff- different tiers of support starting at $2 a month, $3 a month, $5 a month, and $10 a month, uh, which you get a ad-free version of the podcast, you get an ad-free version of the website, you get exclusive content, and you get first crack at any new Socks Machine swag items that come about. So again, if you enjoy your work and you want more, go to patreon.com 
slash Socks Machine and sign up today. And that will do it for this Socks Machine podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. We hope you have a great Memorial Day. And if you just discovered the Socks Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And the Socks Machine podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.